Welcome to The Tech That Connects Us, a podcast dedicated to the stories of leaders in the technology industries that bring us closer together, specifically content and media, satellite and news space, connectivity and cybersecurity. Your hosts are me, John Clifton, Laurie Scott and Will Trenchard, the founders of Nuco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm focused on these exact industries. We love being a part of them and we're excited to share these stories with you. Welcome to the Tech That Connects Us. Your host today are me, John Clifton, alongside Will Trenchard, co-founders of Nuco, and we're delighted to be joined by Margaret Davies. Margaret's career in the broadcast world spans more than 20 years, working for the likes of BBC Technology, Ascent Media and Bright Cove. Having been Red Bee Media's head of sales operations previously, she rejoined them three years ago and she's now their chief marketing officer. Welcome to the show, Margaret. Thank you very much, John. Okay, so I know you've um, I know you've been listening to a couple of our podcasts already, so you know the first question. And um, to get into things, we like to go right back to the beginning. How and why did you get into the broadcast industry? So I got into broadcast technology and the industry in the early part of the two thousands. Um, what happened was I had started my career and started my working career with Ericsson. Um, so in the telecom sector, I'm working in Dublin and I'd spent six years with Ericsson in Dublin and then moving to Germany and then coming to the UK. And in the aftermath of the dot-com bust and equally when telco operators were recovering from having purchased very expensive 3G licenses, I was lucky enough to be able to make a parallel move out of telco into BBC technology because they were looking for people with commercial experience that were going to help them sell services and technology that have been developed for the BBC and sell them to other broadcasters. So that's how I got in. I joined BBCT in 2003 and then stayed with them when then BBC technology was sold to Siemens, which was subsequently sold to Atos. enjoyed the time working with Siemens, but got the opportunity to join Ascent Media, um, which is obviously now Encompass as head of pre-sales, did five years with them, went to Red B, went to Bright Cove, came back to Red B. So I've been pretty much hooked since the beginning part of the 2000s. Great. And there's many things that have changed in the industry uh, since you started working in it. What are your memories um, from when you started of the industry back then? Gosh, um, I suppose when I started, I I loved it. I was working in the design building, which was at the back of what was then BBC Television Centre. And it was just coming in from the telco world, coming in from a blue chip corporate world. It just seemed, even though I was working in technology and as I always describe it, the non-sexy end of television, <laughs> it felt hugely exciting. You know, you were you were part of even if you were doing satellite and fibre distribution, you were part of an industry that was putting BBC One on air. You were part of an industry that was putting, um, you know, channels on on people's TV sets at home. So what I remember was just that huge excitement of being part of something very, very different that touched people's lives. From a, I suppose, a professional perspective, the things that I think have really changed Um, for me that I would say down through the years is when we started out first very much on the play out sector every 
every offering was bespoke. If, if somebody wants to launch a TV channel, you built up their technology, you built up their media service from scratch. That doesn't happen anymore because everything has moved towards being platform based. So this entire shift of an industry where, you know, as a salesperson, you're working on a deal and it's a highly bespoke solution and the, the commercials are different to move to an environment where it's not quite, but it moves towards being rate carded. And then, you're, you know, you're customizing the bit on top. That's a that's a big shift is, is what I would say over the last 15, 17 years that I've been that I've been in, in this world. Uh, for sure, for sure. And you touched on your on your career there. Who or what has been the biggest influence on your career? Did you have a mentor? Um, I would. Oh, God. I would say that actually there hasn't been a single biggest influence. I think every single manager and every single organization I've worked for has taught me something. I've, mm. you know, I've been incredibly lucky with some of the people that I've worked with and I have definitely had managers who took risks on me and promoted me and supported me in ways that um, helped me develop a lot more self-belief. But I think it's, and I always find that a very difficult question to answer because, because I actually think everybody's career is certainly on my own. This is very true of my own. It's an amalgamation of so many influences of people that you've met in different organizations and different cultural um, aspects. You know, I do think probably in terms of the biggest overriding influence was actually that first six years at Ericsson because it taught me I think a number of things. It taught me how to work in <clears throat> a very multinational environment, how to cooperate when you're based in one country and your business units or your customers are in other countries, when English isn't their first language. Um, it also taught me, this is really aging myself now, but it also taught me how to be, quite frankly, a woman in a man's world, a, you know, a non-engineer in a technology environment. Um, and to how to navigate that. So I think those those sort of early six years with Ericsson were very formative in terms of um, really how I've conducted myself and, and also how I've developed down through the years. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And what achievement are you most proud of to date? Um, as somebody that's worked in sales and marketing, <clears throat> I don't think it'll surprise you if I name deals, because there's, and for me, there's really, but there's been two standout deals um, that I've worked on down through the years that um, were standout for a number of reasons. The first one was actually, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a tickle on it on this Monday morning. Um, the first one I would call out was working with the Red Bee Media team in 2013 to win the playout deal with BT Sport. And the reason I'm so proud of that was the team were absolutely, the Red Bee team were fantastic. And the BT Sports team were doing something completely new. They were bringing a brand new proposition to market. They were, they had the energy of a team that was going to go up against Sky. They were going big, they were going for gold. And it was, 
hugely exciting to work on. It was a really compressed timeline, both to do the deal and to get them on air. And seven years later, they are thriving and, you know, and continue to be a Red Bee customer. And, you know, that's why we do it. Similarly, um, the other standout deal for me is one that I worked on in my first year at Ascent Media, which was when Ascent won again, the playout contract with Sony Pictures Television. And it was a huge win for Ascent. Um, they were really proud, the team worked really hard. But the reason that that was a standout one for me was that was truly about the power of the international team, the power of how you work an organization, both in the UK and the US to build those customer relationships at all different types of levels in multi multinational organizations and you know it was complex um and it was challenging to navigation and, and we won and, and and again i think deluxe are still thriving with that customer today yeah for, for sure a couple of great examples there thank you very much and you you've held a variety of of you know senior commercial roles um and more recently as the Chief Marketing Officer at Red Bee, you've moved towards mm. marketing. What is it that you enjoy about it? I, I enjoy the challenge of being part of Red Bee's transformation. You know, so I've, you asked actually what have been the biggest changes that I've seen in the industry over the last while. And it's that move from being highly customised, bespoke, to being much more of a platform-based business that has a very, um, you know, a lovely managed service wrapper that sits on top mm. that provides that operational comfort to clients. And the piece that I love most about what I do is that I am part of helping Red B reposition in that world. I am part of uh, an executive leadership team that is understanding and not just transforming our business, but creating a new business going forward. You know, we are changing. You have to change in response to the market. But I am part of how we communicate that externally, how we reach new customers because the industry is changing, how we continue to keep our existing customers with us. And it's this, it's it's being in this role which is about communicating between, shall I say, the traditional broadcast world mm. and how do we navigate in this new world of all of these new direct-to-consumer offerings mm. Mm. well i think that's that's a that's a brilliant point and and you know we've done some looking back at the uh, at, at the past and i think that brings us now nicely on to the present thank yeah, you so, yeah well one of the things i was really keen to uh, to ask margaret particularly as a marketer you'll have a very acute awareness of everything customer engagement and customer attraction related, both in terms of what your customers would be looking for, but of course, the, what the end user consumer would be mm -hmm. looking for. What's your assessment of the state of the industry right now, particularly taking into account the last six months, whereby we have this dichotomy of people's thirst for content being yeah. huge, but content struggling to be being made? What, what's your kind of feeling on the industry right now? <sighs> Twofold. I think the first one is, and maybe start with the consumer one, I think it's hugely exciting because 
the last six months with the spike in VOD and catch up and OTT and launches of things like Disney Plus, I think it is incredible to watch the way that people's appetite for video is just ever increasing and to watch how um, kids consume and how adults consume and how older people consume it has like what we've seen I feel in the last six to eight months is an absolute acceleration of all of the underlying industry trends that were there so we have seen those skyrocket and again if I come back to you know my role at Red B and and the the broadcast technology and the media services sector is what that means is audiences are continuing to grow that's the thing, they're con con continuing to consume more. So there's huge opportunity for us as an industry because you have to service that and you have to service it with really high quality, beautiful experiences, easy to navigate, easy to find content. So that's very exciting. The challenge is, of course, advertising slumps because there was no, no live events over the last six months. The impact that that has had on our commercial broadcasters, the impact that that has had on their profit and loss and their bottom line and how they recover, because we're in a situation now where, you know, many businesses have had to slow down spend, not just in reaction to decreased revenues, but they've also got to recalibrate as to how do they continue to grow and retain their audiences, given not the sh necessarily the shift from linear to non-linear, but the stabilization of linear and the absolute skyrocketing of, of non-linear. So how do you divert your spend on technology, on marketing, on content creation to reach those audiences? So, you know, I think my view is it's it's going to be very tough to navigate because we're all trying to understand how we capitalize and monetize in this expanded consumption demand. Mm. I, it, it, I agree. It's a, it is a fascinating time. And we, you know, you touched on the trade show bit and I know that, you know, when we were speaking the other day, we yeah. spoke about, um, we spoke about that as well with <clears throat> the trade shows not taking place how how are you finding that that's affecting you guys on the on the sell side i suppose of the industry yeah. of of that of, of not having that ability to be able to either you know meet customers face to face but also you know the big trade shows the ibcs and, and nabs of this world so it's brought many many challenges you know the first one is john as you and i well know this is an industry that thrives on meeting people it thrives <laughs> on relationships it tr it thrives on the personal contact that you can have whether it's on an ibc trade show or a las vegas convention center floor or whether it's meeting somebody for a coffee or going for lunch or, or a drink or whatever it may be it is a business that is um you know, is highly professional, but the importance of those personal relationships can't, you know, can't be, can't be underestimated. So, so there's been many, I suppose I could break it down in terms of the challenges that we've had. Clearly we miss meeting our customers, but everybody has readjusted to working in exclusively digital environments and marketing has had to, because two things don't stop. 
we have to continue communicating with our customers. As I said, we're on a transformation journey as a business. So we have to continue to resonate with our existing customers. But we have to continue to be to be able to communicate and to reach people who don't know Red B. And we have had, from a marketing perspective, we have had to accelerate all of our digital marketing plans. So, you know, we've I've been in the role just coming up to two years and it's been again, I'm going to continue to use the words transformation and acceleration, but from a marketing perspective, it has been about transforming our marketing operation and absolutely becoming more digital. One of, dare I say it, the upsides of COVID and not having the demands of needing to do huge trade shows in Las Vegas and, and Amsterdam is it means you focus all your resources, all your budget on accelerating your digital marketing. So, you know, we are we've been ramping up our nurture campaigns. We've been ramping up our marketing automation capability. We've been ramping up all of the skills that enable us to be creative around how you engage with your existing customers and with your new customers and to be able to measure it. How do you measure it? How do you understand what's successful, what's not successful? So, you know, I don't think we've cracked it. I don't think anybody has cracked it yet. I think we're all trying to understand, you know, there is there's a risk that people are fatigued by Zoom. There's a risk that they're fatigued by webinars. Um, and again, you and I talked about like the, the, the joy of a podcast is not another, you know, it's not yeah. another video call that you've got to do. You can just sit and listen. Um, and and I think from a marketing perspective, there's things that we've done over the last six months that have worked well, some that haven't worked well. But what I know is that we're going to we're going to continue down this path. This isn't one that you turn back from. When it comes to the trade shows, I think 2021, I mean, just looking at the restrictions, you know, that are ramping up in the UK at the moment and throughout different parts of Europe. I fail to see how 2021 will be any kind of a return to normal. Um, as we head into 2022, let's see. What I do think is that, you know, certainly, and again, if I think about our business, we do recognise the importance of the personal relationship. It's whether we in the future have a combination of digital marketing activities that help us reach our customers that are quantifiable, but that those face-to-face -face, um, meetings with our customers are in more, dare I say it, intimate environments as opposed mm -hmm. to big trade shows, whether it's more bespoke customer events or bespoke trade events. Um, I think it's hard to predict, um, but I, I don't see a change in 2021, certainly not for the first half. We'll see where we where we are when we come into the second half of the year. But I think clearly with IBC being in September and then NAB being three or four weeks later, um, I think that's tough for the industry. I think that's we will need to see what you know what impact that has um, towards yeah. the second half of the year. Yeah, that that feels like. I mean, I've put a couple of posts out on on LinkedIn about it. It it, it feels to me like a, a a slightly divisive decision i know lots of people have said oh you know it doesn't matter they're um they're they're more, they're more regional anyhow all those sorts of things but as you and i were talking about the other day just the sheer logistics 
uh, for, for a lot of companies of, of mm-hmm. just the logistics of, of moving the people, moving the stands, everything like that makes it, makes it difficult. But I suppose a key question, you know, I, I, I'm in agreement. I don't think that the, the big trade shows are, are likely to happen, to be honest, at all in the year. If those don't happen and we're looking at 2022 until there's a big trade show, so to speak, that will then be, you know, nearly a gap of like, like two and a half, three years, depending on the show of, of when they would have taken place. And, you know, you talk about the acceleration of the digital marketing that you guys have, have done so much of already. If that is the case and they're not until 2022, what would your feeling as a marketeer be on whether it's worth re-engaging in what could be perceived as a, an old activity? I think we will veer more towards customised events with for our customers, ones that we would create and we would have the opportunity, quite frankly, to get a maximum benefit out of. One of the difficulties with a trade show is, you know, you, you put on this huge booth, you invest a huge amount in the campaign and the run-up to the attendance, you pre-book meetings, you put pressure on your salespeople to guarantee that they're going to be bringing people to the booth. But um, it is, it is, there's a huge, you do a huge amount you can do in advance, but it is still an unknown as mm-hmm. to whether people are going to come out. I think if we head into 2022 and given the economic situation the way it is, the pressure that will continue to be on marketing budgets, we will want to place our bets on doing physical events where we can have a much higher hit rate and where we can have a much more guaranteed outcome of engagement with the people that we want to talk to, um, an ability to drive the conversations that we want to, rather than relying on a bit of hit and miss as to whether people will come to a trade show. And I think that's the, you know, this is where it becomes the a real challenge between balancing what we all want, which is to meet people and that spark and that creativity and that buzz that you feel when you're in a trade show environment and you see what's happening around you and you see what's happening with other vendors and, and you know, and you hear stories about what customers are doing, what vendors are doing balancing that against around the fact that we have to, as marketers, have a very tight control on our budgets. We will have to, you know, within this environment, be very smart about where we spend our money and and guarantee that we're able to have, um, you know, a, a higher level of, of return in terms of whether it's leads or furthering opportunities. And I think this is where it becomes very difficult as a marketer, because what the trade shows are ultimately about is driving brand awareness and how you measure driving brand awareness is is very difficult to quantify. It's not like you can link it directly to number of new leads. And I think that's the balance that we have to continually assess Um as we head into 2022 and that feels like a huge crystal ball (laughs) looking you know looking that far ahead but it is but it is realistic you know because um whether NAB reverts to an April timetable whether to your point John it becomes a North American show without the same level of international participation um I think 
it's it's very very difficult to know what I do know is we like to put our marketing dollars where we can try and guarantee measured success and drive that engagement with our existing customers our new customers and that will have to come at you know there come there are trade-offs between stuff that you would like to do that maybe you can't guarantee the same level of return yeah it's um it's a tricky one but i think the i'm sure the event organizers themselves will um will make some changes and uh, and <clears throat> you know and and adapt their business models for the future, I'm sure. Um, so before we move on to a, uh, to another fairly big topic, um, just a couple more about the future from Will. Yeah, what, um, what does the future hold for the consumer? What do you think they might experience? They have got so much choice. I think the challenge for the consumer is how to curate, how to decide and find what, what resonates for you. What are those, what's that experience? What's the programming that you resonate with beyond the big, huge flagship brands like your BBC iPlayer or your Netflix or your Disney Plus? Mm. You know, how do you find and navigate um, and find content if you've moved away from linear television where you know the joy of being a controller at a channel like BBC Two is you could potentially take a risk and you know put on screen some sort of programming that people have never watched before or which doesn't quite fit you know in the schedule and it's a little bit new and you can test things out I think the challenge for consumers will be as we rely so much on recommendations and on telling people well you liked this so I think you might like this is how to navigate and find stuff that surprises and delights you and I think that will be the big challenge. Yeah, fantastic. And, and to that end, you know, there's, there's, you, know, you touched it earlier, there's been such a rise in terms of OTT and the AVOD and, and S-Form platforms. Do you think eventually that's how we'll consume all our content? Or do you think there'll always be a place for, you know, the public broadcasters, pay TV providers and other networks? I think that this pandemic has taught us that there will absolutely be a role for public service broadcasters in the future. You know, I think that um, if I look at what in particular, um, because I'm familiar with them, is like if I look at what the BBC has done and if I look at what RT in Ireland has done around, for example, children's programming, adapting and creating new content, not just to put on linear channels, but to also put on their non-linear experiences um, in response directly to a pandemic, I think has been phenomenal. I think that we have seen the importance of those public service broadcasters in terms of providing a very high quality guaranteed linear experience when everybody needs to receive a prime minister's um, press conference at five o'clock every day. I think that there, that shared national experience around a live event, I think it's been rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. So I do see an absolute continued role for linear. I think that it has to coexist with an ever exploding non-linear world. Mm-hmm. But I do think that And I thought this before the pandemic, the role for linear was always around those live experiences, whether it was watching the 
final of the X Factor or um, everybody, you know, watching TV at the same time to see who won the Great British Bake Off. There was always, television always brings together those major, major live events that I think has has absolutely come through um, during the pandemic. And as I said, with the role of the public service broadcasters, how they have been really creative in responding to the needs of the nation and whether that was children's programming or, you know, bringing back lots of box sets for many, many love programs and making those available to people. Um, I think it's very much it's it's very much there. Again, the challenge is, and you know, and I think we've seen the narrative in the UK move on very quickly in the last few weeks, is it's the funding for those cherished public service broadcasters that becomes the challenge. You know, clearly in the UK we will be as we emerge from the pandemic, um, the public coffers are going to be severely challenged. Yeah. So it's. I don't think the role of the PSBs is the one that's been challenged. I think the funding um, is what is going to be challenging for those in the future. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you think and feel that they've got a big place because that's 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 really wonderful to hear. Um, it's it's been pretty tough for certain sections of of the industry, um, and in this new sort of forming landscape, where do you see the biggest opportunity? Oh, I think the biggest opportunity has to be enabling people to get to market really quickly with uh, new content offerings, you know, uh, and that's probably not a new opportunity. That's 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 an opportunity that has existed for the last while. I think the biggest opportunity is those broadcast technology providers or those managed services providers that can help people do things quickly, because I think it's it's this balance between consumers are now trained to expect a very high quality of experience. You know, they're, they, they want that, I think, that broadcast grade, lovely streamed experience on their iPhone, the same as they get on their nice, yeah. you know, UHD telly. And um, I think service providers that can be flexible and fast and help people spin up services quickly and spin them down and test and try out new things. I think those are the ones that will really be able to harness these accelerated market industry um, changes that we've seen over the past while. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much, Margaret, uh, for, for sharing you know, excellent insights and, and opinions there. Um, one thing we'd all like to see uh, more is diversity in the industry. What's your take on how we as an industry can encourage greater mm. diversity? Um, so I think this is a very, very tough one. And it is one that um, we continue to struggle with and, and continue to grapple with. Um, I, what can we do? I, I suppose my personal opinion is this is not something that is an easy fix. This is about a generational change and that it starts in schools and it starts with absolutely girls being encouraged in STEM projects, but it equally, it's about equally encouraging boys to do other things as well. I think from an industry perspective, um, and we see this at Red B because we we struggle to recruit 
women engineers. We, we struggle to recruit women software developers. Um, I think that it's about engaging, dare I say it, men across the industry and understanding why diversity is important. And for me, the reason diversity is important is because it drives different decision making. It challenges the nature of decision making. It challenges the value that you bring to either a customer relationship or a commercial engagement. If you have a variety of backgrounds in that conversation. So for me, what will drive the change is actually not just not about hitting targets. It's about business leaders recognizing that to improve your business, to drive more revenue, drive more sales, you have to have a larger variety of voices in the conversation and not people with the same backgrounds, not people with the same looks. You need to do things differently. You have to change it up. And I think you have to drive. That's why diversity is important to me. And, mm. you know, and I, I sit, I've spent a career sitting in mostly rooms with lots and lots of men and um, not enough women and the female voices that come through, cut through very clearly. I think the women that work in this industry, dare I say it, have to be smarter because they've had to work harder to succeed. And I think it's about business leaders letting them come through because it's that diversity in conversation is what will deliver business impact. You know, there's a phrase that I've often heard in relation to sustainability and I applied to diversity as well which is sustainability as a as an initiative within any business it's not sustainable unless it delivers business value it has to contribute to the bottom line and while we have clearly laws that protect um, bias against uh, a raft of categories the reality is diversity has to drive business value. And that's where, for me, it comes back to diversity lends itself to more diverse, more challenging decision making. And that's what ultimately should drive business value. Sorry if that sounds a little bit hypothetical, but um, it's I think it's a really challenging. It's a really, really challenging area for the business. And it comes with, quite frankly, the men who are business leaders recognizing that they have to let more voices through in, in the business to to be able to drive a different type of business value. I completely agree. As a as a dad of three girls, um, the particularly the gender diversity thing is is something yeah. that I'm becoming more and more acutely aware of. And, and I mean, it's a topic that we could discuss for hours and hours, and it's yeah. so complex. But thanks very much for um, for your thoughts on that. So. Um, well, we're going to uh, learn a bit more about um, about Margaret in this next section, I think. Yes, indeed. Well, we, we, we've, we've learned a lot now, and, and thank you for that. But our, our listeners are a curious bunch, um, so they'd learn, like to learn a little bit more about you. Um, what does a perfect weekend look like for you, Margaret? Um, well, I'm a bit of a homebody, so I have to say a perfect weekend for me is probably a long walk with the dog in the Surrey Hills, coming back to um, somebody magically having cooked me a very nice roast dinner with a nice bottle of wine and a clean and tidy house. 
<laughs> Excellent stuff. So, and, and that's, is that with the family? Um, well, as a mother of two young children, preferably the dog walk would be on my own. <laughs> so for a little peace and quiet <laughs> away from the, uh, the chaos of the house. In, indeed. And, and how do you like to spend time as a family? Are there things you do together, sports or activities? So we're a hugely active family. Well, Mike, in that our kids are hugely active. So we spend a huge amount of time sitting by the sides of swimming pools or pre-COVID sitting by the sides of swimming pools. Now yes. we're only allowed to drop them to, to, the, to, to the door. Rugby pitches, um, cross-country running, ferrying them about. But yeah, a lot of our time is spent outdoors. So it's, it's, uh, we're all walkers, runners, etc. Great stuff, great stuff. It, it, it sounds exhausting just listening, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that, uh, with that routine. Brilliant. Okay, well, that takes us nicely on to the quick fire round. All right, very good. Now, um, you, you did ask me in advance whether you could answer both for any of, uh, for any of these questions. <laughs> Having done a bit of research, <laughs> the answer is no, you're not. You have to choose one. Uh, so right. going to go... So we're going to go straight into it. And this is one that we uh, we have been asking everybody in this recent series. So we, we'll kick off with triumphed in lockdown or failed in lockdown. Well, only because that you've now told me how I can't choose both. I will say <laughs> triumphed. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Builders tea or flat white? Builders all the way. All right. Box set and a takeaway or fine dining? Box set and a takeaway. Glass of fizz or a pint of Guinness? Fizz. <laughs> uh, Bubbles all the way. <laughs> oh, country. I'm a, I, I am a country girl, absolutely. Yeah, love the city, but I am a country girl. <laughs> Cinema or theatre? Theatre. Gap or Gucci? For the kids or for me? Um <laughs> <laughs> I have. I might say Gucci. <laughs> uh, plane or train? Plane. Uh, Self catering or all inclusive? All inclusive. Uh, camping or glamping? Glamping. Neither, <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if, if it's permission. <laughs> uh, and a bit of an industry one to finish Netflix or Now TV? Netflix. All right, very good. Um, well, listen, thank you very much. Um, and just passing back to Will for uh, for the final question that we ask all our guests. Thanks very much, John. Yeah, what, what one piece of advice would you give someone entering the industry? Oh, great question. Um, I think the piece of advice I would give somebody is one that I wish had been given to me which is say yes to anything anybody asks you to do, clearly within the limits of law, but say <laughs> yes, because when you come into our industry and, you know, I would say the majority of people that come into our industry are very bright graduates, very bright kids that have worked very hard in school and in university and they've got a nice creative flair, whether that's, uh, you know, to make TV programs or to to be on the technology side. And I think the one piece of advice I certainly wish I'd been given and I give to anybody now is you don't know where this industry will take you. You don't know who you're going to meet along the way and that actually you should grab 
every opportunity. So if somebody says to you, um, you know, come to this meeting just so that you can help me take the minutes or you can set up the IT for me or you can get the power, you know, get the PowerPoint going and you can listen in, do it. Don't be humble enough to know that, you know, it's a brilliant industry to be part of, but everybody has to start um, learning about the wider in business environment and you have to learn how teams work and I think it's really worth coming into this industry with your eyes wide open and taking every opportunity that's presented to you and to say yes to doing things and the reason I say do you don't have to do that as you get older but where the importance is is by saying yes to everything you find out an awful lot about what you like doing and what you don't like doing and that helps to inform how you develop your own career. Fabulous bit of advice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Margaret. We really, really appreciate it. It's great to hear all your thoughts, your insights, stories. It was a, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, been very self-reflective. Thank you very much, John. <laughs> Lovely. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.neuco-group.com. You've been listening to The Tech That Connects Us.